You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 1349, a 36-year-old Florentine man named Giovanni Boccaccio started work on what he believed was his masterpiece, a collection of novellas called The Decameron. In the book, a small group of young people, seven women and three men, flee from Florence to the rural outskirts of the city. To pass the time, each member of the party takes a turn telling a story to amuse the rest of the group. The group isn't just in the rural region of Fiesole to enjoy a break from city life, however, but rather to escape the plague. Boccaccio, likely writing from his own experience living in the city when the deadly disease hit in 1348, started the book by describing the situation the plague caused in Florence. People, both rich and poor, were confined to their homes without any hope of friends or physicians coming to their aid. Boccaccio writes, quote, being confined to their own parts of the city, they fell ill in their thousands, and since they had no one to assist them or to attend to their needs, they inevitably perished, almost without exception. Many dropped dead in the open streets, both by day and night, and whilst a great many others, though dying in their own houses, drew their neighbors' attention to the fact more by the smell of their rotting corpses than by any other means." And what with these and the others who were dying all over the city, bodies were here, there, and everywhere. After a dead body was discovered, Boccaccio wrote, it was taken out of the house and simply left on the front doorstep until local men with a beer, which is sort of a flat cart, could come and take the body away. Quote, it was by no means rare for more than one of these beers to be seen with two or three bodies upon them at a time. On the contrary, many were seen to contain a husband and wife, two or three brothers and sisters, a father and son, or some other pair of close relatives. At times it happened that two priests would be on their way to bury someone, holding a cross before them, only to find that bearers carrying three or four additional Beers would fall in behind them so that whereas the priests had thought they had only one burial to attend to, they in fact had six or seven and sometimes more. What Boccaccio was describing wasn't just any epidemic. It was the Black Death, the virulent disease that had made its way from the lands of the Golden Horde in Eastern Europe to the Mediterranean ports of the Italian peninsula. The disease rampaged around Europe between 1347 and 1353, killing by some estimates as many as 60% of the British Isles and European continent. 
As we see in Boccaccio's descriptions of Florence during the first wave of the plague, the rate of death was overwhelming to graveyards and to priests performing funerals. Yes, but it was also overwhelming to medicine, to social systems, and to religious structures. Families were thrown into chaos, the Catholic Church faced dissension in its ranks, and townships struggled to provide services and control infection. The sheer ubiquity of death even fostered an artistic genre, the danse macabre, which reminded young and old, rich and poor, healthy and sick alike, that all would be made equal in death. For this episode in our death series, what better topic than the Black Death itself? I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. It might seem backwards to start the story of the Black Death, which, you know, was a medieval epidemic in the 19th century. And it's not just that it's because I think it's the best century. But I actually think it's useful to understand just what it was that caused this disease. And we didn't understand that until the end of the 19th century. The Black Death was an outbreak of what historians and doctors now call the bubonic plague, a zoonotic disease caused by bacteria transferred through the mouthparts of fleas. And zoonotic just means that it's a disease that originates in animals and is shared with humans. But no one knew that, right, knew that that was what caused the Black Death until the end of the 19th century. After Louis Pasteur's breakthrough disproving of the miasma theory and Robert Koch's innovation in bacteriology in the mid to late 19th century, it was suddenly possible for scientists to identify the cause of diseases. There had been little outbreaks of the plague, particularly in Asia, throughout the 19th century. But in 1894, there was a serious epidemic in Canton, a region in China. Something like 50,000 to 100,000 people died during the epidemic, which was closely followed by another epidemic in British-held Hong Kong. Terrified that the plague would spread, European and Japanese doctors went to Hong Kong to study the disease. In June 1894, Alexander Yersin, a French bacteriologist, and Kitasado Shibasaburo, a Japanese bacteriologist, traveled to Hong Kong to study the disease. There had been suspicion about the fact that there had been a ton of dead black rats in Hong Kong in recent months, and Yersin and Shibasaburo suspected it might be connected to the outbreak. Within just a few weeks, they identified bacteria in both the blood of plague sufferers and in dead rats. While both scientists were involved in its discovery, the bacterium was ultimately named for Yersin, Yersinia pestis. It was also Yersin who connected the dead rats to the bacteria causing the plague in humans, saying, quote, it is probably that the rats constitute the principal vehicle. Identifying the bacteria was a huge breakthrough, but it didn't actually solve the mystery of how the bacteria traveled from rat to human. Did it travel through the air, like we know that the hantavirus does today? In 1903, during another outbreak in Bombay, a British entomologist named Glenn Liston observed that many of the plague patients in a certain overcrowded apartment building had fleas. But they weren't people fleas. They were a particular kind of flea that only liked black rats. In 1905, in reaction to the outbreak in India, the British government put together the Indian Plague Commission, which was tasked with determining how the disease was spread, and Glenn Liston joined it. 
Liston's place on the commission likely influenced just how much emphasis the group placed on investigating the role the flea had in this whole thing. One of the first things they discovered was that the bacteremia, or the level of bacteria in someone's blood, of people was small, which made it really unlikely that fleas were carrying the disease from person to person. On the other hand, they found that bacteremia in rats was super high, meaning that it must be moving from rat to flea to person. But how exactly was it doing that? At first, the commission suspected that it transmitted plague in the same way that lice transmitted the typhus virus. To make a long, kind of gross story short, the typhus um, virus passed through the body of lice and was excreted into its poop. So when someone scratched at an itch from a louse bite, they ended up scratching the poop into the bite wound, entering the virus into their bloodstream. But yeah, it was super gross. But the researchers found that while Yersinia pestis survived the journey through the flea's digestive system, it wasn't strong enough to do any harm after it was pooped out. Then they thought that maybe it was getting stuck on the flea's proboscis, the, the little, you know, um, needly thing that bites you, right? Kind of like a mosquito. Um, but the bacteria were so large that they didn't get stuck. Like they couldn't get stuck on there. Eventually, with very close study of flea digestive systems, the commission determined that what was happening was that a flea would drink blood from a rat, filling up its stomach. And yes, scientists, I know that it's not called a stomach. I'm just trying to make this simpler, um, which would then be closed by a little flap. The flap keeps all that blood in the flea's tummy. Otherwise, it would all be shoved back out because it's the tummy is essentially under pressure, right? But the bacteria in the blood reproduce so quickly that it creates a kind of blockage. So later, when the flea goes to feed again, let's say this time on a human, it's forced to regurgitate just a little bit of that blockage in order to suck up more blood, which, of course, injects the bacteria and starts the infection. <laughs> April's really grossed out right now. <laughs> I hate fleas. So once it's in your bloodstream, the bacillus re reproduces extremely rapidly, making the immune system just go haywire. Typically, the body would attempt to neutralize and isolate the germ into the lymphatic system, but the bacillus overwhelms the system, causing blood poisoning, which then causes a rapid onset high fever. As the body tries to isolate the germ into the lymph nodes, the nodes swell and swell and swell, causing what are called buboes, or extremely swollen lymph nodes. And that's why it's called the bubonic plague. See? These buboes are usually on the groin, but can also be in the armpits or the neck, depending on where the flea bites you. Right, so it's going to swell closest to the bite site. Mm -hmm. And typically, I think probably because they're fleas and they're they're not making it all the way up to your upper body, mm -hmm. they are really low. Those buboes are usually right in your groin. Mm-hmm. It's possible that if the lymphatic system is energetic enough, it can control the infection. But more often, the germ overloads the system. As your body tries to fight the infection, you get a raging fever, become increasingly weak, and generally become dehydrated and delirious. Within a couple of days, the person dies of septicemia. Depending on your health at the time of infection and your age, etc., without really strong antibiotics, you would typically die in about 7 to 10 days. 
This variant, the bubonic plague, is not all that contagious because it's not passed from person to person. For instance, it's not like the flu being passed as you cough or like Ebola passed through bodily fluids. Instead, it's almost always spread through the flea. It is possible for it to spread from human to human, but only under very certain situations. So like you'd have to come into contact, direct contact with blood or pus. And the only people really who would be doing that is maybe a doctor who say tried to lance a bubo or something like like that, because it's not a disease that causes bleeding. Like you're not coughing up blood or Mm -hmm. like Ebola causes lots of bleeding and bodily fluids. This is not a disease that really does that. So the, the, Disease is really being spread from flea bites, not from interpersonal contact. Right. So the bubonic plague is the most common variant, but it can manifest in other ways. So septicemic plague occurs when the amount of bacteria delivered by the flea is particularly large, and it is able to multiply so quickly that it overloads the system, killing a patient within just a couple of days, without the time to develop buboes. Pneumonic plague occurs when the bacteria happens to collect in the lungs, where the bacillus infects the lung tissue, and like septicemic plague, it kills very rapidly. Pneumonic plague is highly contagious because it causes the victim to cough a lot, spreading the disease as it becomes airborne. But in most cases, it doesn't actually spread the disease much because the person is made so sick so quickly that they just don't have much opportunity to spread the disease. They die so fast, right? And just to be clear, these are all the same bacteria, the Yersinia pestis, but just different ways that it affects your body. Yeah, like different strains, sort of. So how do we know that the Black Death was this particular disease? Well, first of all, archaeologists and scientists have done in recent years extensive DNA studies on bodies in Black Death burial grounds and have proven the presence of Yersinia pestis genomes in those remains. In fact, one study published in the journal Cell, and I would list the authors here, but there are 32 (laughs) co-authors, so I'm going to link that in the show notes. (laughs) Um, But this this article in Cell reported that microbiologists discovered traces of Yersinia pestis in the bones of Bronze Age people who died around 5,000 years ago. But there's also strong evidence in written sources from the period of the Black Death. Louis Heiligen, a Flemish monk and musician, wrote that there were three forms of plague, describing with surprising accuracy the pneumonic, septicemic, and bubonic strains. So he's in the moment recognizing that there's these three different ways that it can manifest. Mm. A French friar wrote in 1360 that, quote, most who fell ill lasted little more than two or three days, but died suddenly as if in the midst of health. For someone who was healthy one day could be dead and buried the next. Lumps suddenly erupted in their armpits or groin, and their appearance was an infallible sign of death. Greek scholar Critobulus wrote that for those with plague in Constantinople, quote, the disease settles in the groin, a symptom that appears more or less clearly. To put it simply, the descriptions left by those who lived through it match up really well with symptoms that modern science attributes to Yersinia pestis. Then again... Not all historians agree, right, as we are wont to do. Susan Scott and Christopher Duncan have theorized that the plague in England wasn't Yersinia pestis at all, but actually a hemorrhagic fever caused by a virus. And since English sources are a little more vague about symptoms than other sources, you know, who knows, right? So you might pick up 
during this episode um, as we go on that historiography on the Black Death is massive and there's tons of debate about everything. And it's not just between historians. It's also between archaeologists and microbiologists. So everything that I have in here, I've tried to give sort of the, the best possible interpretations. I consulted many different sources, including many primary sources. But like everything is super hotly debated. So anyway, now that we know what the plague is and how it spreads, we can finally start to explore the history of how bacteria-laden fleas cause those mass graves in places like Florence. The outbreak that historians now call the Black Death began its rampage across Europe in 1347. But as scientists have now proved, it existed for centuries before that. There's evidence of what seems like plague in the Bible, in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, and the author describes a moment during the war between the Philistines and the Israelites where an epidemic raged. Quote, the head of the Lord was against the city, a very great destruction, and he smote the men of the city, both great and small, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. The hand of God was very heavy there. Historians have debated the meaning of the word emeralds here. Many Hebrew scholars have asserted that the word emerald in Hebrew, in conjunction with the another word used with it, olafim, means swelling. Since the swelling was in the private parts, or groin, and later in first kings, there are descriptions of cities overrun with rodents, it has seemed pretty clear that these ancient cities were affected by the plague. Others suggested that it actually referred to hemorrhoids, specifically suggesting that the epidemic was actually a kind of dysentery that caused hemorrhoids. <laughs> uh, yes, this was purely because the word emerald and hemorrhoid sound similar. Right. And like, I'm not a linguist, right? Perhaps they are linguistically related. I am not sure. But from what I could gather, it's because they sound similar. <laughs> and this seems really unlikely, Largely because, as many military physicians have pointed out, dysentery doesn't really cause hemorrhoids. And while dysentery is deadly, indeed, hemorrhoids are not. They're unpleasant, but, but not, not deadly. deadly. Archaeological evidence also suggests large numbers of black rats in the region, so it seems likely the sickness affecting the Philistines was indeed the plague. Right. There's more evidence that the famed physicians of the ancient world also knew about the plague. The Hippocratic Corpus, the ancient medical text written by several doctors, all under the name of Hippocrates, who was the probably mythical Greek physician, described isolated incidents of what seems likely to be the plague. Other Greek medical writers, like Rufus of Ephesus, wrote about outbreaks of disease that were even more clearly plague, with specific reference to the characteristic lymphatic swellings of the bubonic plague. Quote, The buboes that are called pestilential are very acute and very fatal, especially those which one may encounter unexpectedly in Libya, Egypt, and Syria, and which they say were accompanied by high fever agonizing pain, severe constitutional disturbance, delirium, and appearance of large, hard buboes that did not separate. Separate meaning secreting sort of pus. Um, not only in the usual regions of the body, but also the back of the knee and the bend of the elbow, where, as a rule, similar fevers do not cause their formation. So describing something that sounds very much like the plague. 
And there was a plague pandemic long before the outbreak of the Black Death in 1346. The first pandemic of the plague wasn't the Black Death, but the Plague of Justinian, named for Justinian I, emperor of the Byzantine Empire from 527 to 565. This pandemic ravaged the Byzantine Empire and Persia between 541 and 767 in 15 separate outbreaks. So just as a side note for um, just to make sure that you understand the, the language we're using, a pandemic is a series or group of epidemics. So like when we say that like the 1918 flu pandemic, that means that there was epidemics happening in multiple places at the same time. Yes. And, and sometimes over... The course of many years. It's also a great board game. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, the Justinian plague pandemic began in Constantinople, now called Istanbul, in 541-542, and at its peak, it killed somewhere around 5,000 people a day in that city. Paul the Deacon, a historian monk living in Italy at the time of the Justinian plague, wrote, quote, Everywhere there was grief and everywhere tears. For as common report had it that those who fled would avoid the plague, the dwellings were left deserted by their inhabitants, and the dogs alone kept house. Sons fled, leaving the corpses of their parents unburied. Parents, forgetful of their duty, abandoned their children in raging fever. And I think this is really interesting um, because we see this same kind of theme of abandonment, families abandoning one another, not not just um, the sons fled, leaving the corpses of their parents unburied, but also parents leaving children who are still alive but dying, or family members leaving each other who are dying or, or trying to escape without taking care of each other. That comes up in many plague chronicles, including Boccaccio. Um, not in the part of the Decameron that we read at the beginning, but it comes up in other places in that, that introduction to the Decameron. So that is a theme both in the first plague wave of the plague of Justinian and in the Black Death. Hmm. The first plague had serious ramifications. The population decrease and economic decline seriously harmed the strength of the Byzantine Empire, with particular effect on the army. Formerly occupied Byzantine territories like the Baltics and Italy were invaded and occupied, the Baltics by the Slavs, and Italy by the Germanic Lombards. In North Africa, it meant that Muslim Arabs' armies seized Byzantine land in Egypt, Syria, Palestine, and Armenia, eventually invading into the Mediterranean, taking most of Spain, and making it all the way into France. But then the plague seemed to just disappear. There were other plagues. Uh, plague was a term that medieval people applied to all sorts of things, from insects to diseases. But none that appeared to be chalked up to Yersinia pestis. So what made it come back in the mid-1300s? Well, no one's completely sure. Right. They're debating it. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what people do about the Black Death. But here's one theory that lots of historians buy into. The plague existed naturally in wild rodents in particular regions, specifically in the American Southwest and in southern Russia. It still exists in the American Southwest, by the way. Mm. So be careful hanging out with rodents in, you know... The desert. Yes. <laughs> As one is likely to do. Although we could treat you with strong antibiotics now, though. And you'd be all right. Yeah. The plague that hit Europe likely originated somewhere in southern Russia. 
but some historians say it was probably actually Manchurian or Mongolian uh, steppes in northeast China, while others say it was actually the Yunnan or Burma, what is Myanmar, um, in southern China region. Other folks say it couldn't have originated in China at all and actually probably came from Russia. Historian Ula Benediktau, who has written one of the most insanely detailed synthetic histories of the Black Death, dismisses the China theory and instead argues that it most likely originated in the Crimean Peninsula on the Black Sea in the land of the Mongol Khanate known as the Golden Horde. Anyway, wherever it originated, unless it was disturbed, that wild rodent disease would just sort of hang out in those wild rodents and never travel. But something happened to transfer the flea from wild rodents to commensal black rats. So, in case you're not aware, the the term commensal refers to rodents that live in conjunction with humans. So, like, the mice that live in your house, the rats that live in your barn, those are commensal rodents. Whereas, like, field mice or, like, what are the voles, those are non-commensals because they don't live basically almost in a parasite-like relationship with humans. Does that make sense? Yes. They're called commensals. Ew. It could have been armies traveling through the region, bringing rats with them, or it could have been traveling merchants. There just aren't written records from the era or area, so it's just really guesswork at this juncture. Right. One theory that does come down from the written record, and it's a theory that you may have heard before, is that the plague was transmitted from the Golden Horde in Eastern Europe through biological warfare. Italian merchants recorded that Jonabeg, a warrior from the Kipchak Khanate, a.k.a. the Golden Horde, uh, flung plague-infested corpses into the Crimean port city of Kaffa, and fleeing Genoese uh, merchants accidentally then brought the disease back to the Italian peninsula with them. While it's definitely possible that this thing happened, Ula Benedictau Uh, points out that the plague isn't really spread through contact with infected bodies. It's spread by the flea. And while the bodies might have had fleas on them, it's not likely that the number of fleas on those dead bodies could have had a big impact. But even more damning is that medieval people didn't know anything about bacteriology. So instead, they believed that the disease or that disease in general, was spread by miasmas or bad smells. This is going to be a major theme for the rest of the episode. So in order to believe that they were spreading the disease by using corpses and flinging them over the gates, they would have had to keep those dead bodies around until they got nice and decomposed and stinky, which seems like a great way to give yourself the plague, right? If you're like just keeping dead infected bodies just sitting around until they're nice and stinky and then touching them and, you know, loading them onto catapults. Like, it just seems really unlikely that they would think that this was a great plan. Um, That's not to say that it never happened. More specifically, it's to say that that didn't spread the plague, even if it did happen, right? More likely, Benedictau says, it seems that the plague entered Kaffa with the commensal rats that accompanied the attacking horde. No need to fling bodies, right? Rats can just go wherever they want. And once the rats were in Kaffa, it seems like a no-brainer to believe that they also made their way onto Italian merchant ships loaded down with delicious grain. The departing Italian ships from Kaffa sailed through the Bosporus and anchored in Constantinople, bringing the plague with them. A historian later described the Black Death's first effects on the city, quote, So incurable was the evil that neither any regularity of life nor any bodily strength could resist it. 
Strong and weak bodies were similarly carried away, and those best cared for died in the same manner as the poor. Those who could resist for two or three days had very violent fever at first, and disease in such cases attacking the head. They suffered from speechlessness and insensibility to all happenings, and then appeared as if sunken in a deep sleep. Then, if from time to time they came to themselves, they wanted to speak, but the tongue was hard to move, and they uttered inarticulate sounds because the nerves around the back part of the head were dead, and they died suddenly. From Constantinople, ships traveled through the Sea of Mamara and the Aegean Sea to the Mediterranean, bringing the plague to cities all around the sea so that Sicily and Alexandria were hit at the same time in 1347. In the winter of 1348, it arrived in northern Italy. One account says that Genoa blocked its ports to try to keep it at bay, but ships arrived further west on the coast in Marseille, which seems to have been enough to get the disease into mainland Europe. It soon hopped the Alps into central Europe, where it moved quickly on trade ships zipping around Europe's rivers. According to historian Jean-Noël Birabin, the plague also moved rapidly on land routes, traveling, he estimated, one to four kilometers a day during 1348 to 49. This is what amazes me about plague scholars. Like, the the level of intense sort of statistical analysis and population analysis, all this stuff that they do. I mean, I can't imagine doing the study that would have allowed me to say, like, oh, I think the plague moved between one to four kilometers a day. Like... Yeah, because... This many hundreds of years ago. We don't use kilometers. That's why it's hard. Well, that would be hard for me because I don't actually know what that means. I don't know how many one to four kilometers is. Um, But I'm assuming it's a good good jump. It's like a mile. Is it? The one to four range, yeah. You don't know that. It's like 2.5 kilometers per mile. So it's a mile to a mile and a bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We have PhDs, folks. Whoa! The disease likely hopped the channel from France to enter England, where it moved quickly around the small country. By 1350, the plague had reached even the most remote areas, including the Orkney and Faroe Islands. Even the Danish and Norse colonists living on Greenland were hit, leading them to abandon the island. Russia was spared for many years, but when the disease finally hit Moscow in 1353, it took a heavy toll, killing the Metropolitan Bishop Theognostus of Kiev, plus Grand Prince of Moscow Simeon Ivanovich, his two sons, and his brother Andre. What? I was just screaming, no, Simeon! (laughs) Well, can I say a funny story about Simeon? So in my one text that I was using, I think it's the one by Joseph Byrne, he refers to him as Simeon Ivanovich. (laughs) S-E-M-E-N. And I was like, can that be right? And I like searched it like for a, it was like a weird rabbit hole that I went down. And I think it must just be like a Russian or Cyrillic spelling of Simeon. Transliteration. Because most, most sources I found did not spell it Simeon. They spelled it Simeon. I hope that it's Simeon and not Simeon. Anyway. Uh, 1353 was the final year of this first wave of the Black Death, but it was far from over. Between 1353 and 1518 major epidemics took place around Europe. As Francesco Petrarch, poet of the Italian Renaissance, wrote in 1367, 
Plague has been heard and read of in books, but no universal plague that would empty the world had ever been seen or heard of. This one has been invading all lands now for 20 years. Sometimes it stops in some places or lessens, but is never really gone. Just when it seems to be over, it returns and attacks once more those who were briefly happy. And this pattern, if I am not mistaken, is a sign of the divine anger at human crimes. If those crimes were to end, the divine punishments would get less or milder. And I want to pause here for just one second to say, um, I believe that actually the last wave of the plague happens in the 1600s in England. I think it's it, it's actually well, it's like this, the middle 1600s um, that there's that last plague um, in England. And there's some debate over whether all of those plagues, in quotes, plagues, were the plague, right? But it seems very likely that the majority of them at least were. They could have been other things. There are other weird things like the sweat that hits England during this time period and the was this like a, there's like a dancing, do you know what the dancing plague? Like there's all Apparently. sorts of weird things that happen, but probably the, the overwhelming majority of them were Yersinia pestis. Petrarch's reference to divine retribution is really telling there because it raises the question, where did people believe the Black Death came from? French astrologer Geoffrey de Maux wrote a treatise on the cause of the plague in which he blamed astrological phenomena that took place in 1345 before the outbreak. He said, Wherefore it has been and is known by all astrologers that in the year 1345 there was a total eclipse of the moon of long duration on 18th March. At the longitude of Oxford, it began an hour after the moon rose, and at the time the two planets were in conjunction in Aquarius, and Mars was with them in the same sign within the light of Jupiter. French physician John Jacobus, as recorded by Swedish cleric Bent Knudsen, argued that the, argued that the disease was caused by corrupted air, when environmental factors align, a hot sun, for instance, accompanied by a strong wind from a certain direction, foul air could spread disease. He said, sometimes it comes of dead carrion or the corruption of standing waters in ditches or sloughs or other corrupt places. And these things are sometimes universal and sometimes particular. I just want to jump in here because I think this is interesting because we know now that the quote unquote the corruption of standing water actually can spread disease but how is it gonna how does standing water spread disease Avril? by drinking it well yeah but you're probably not gonna well yes typically you're not gonna be drinking out of an old stagnant puddle but what do puddles foster mosquitoes mosquitoes right which will spread disease this was a so, lesson and i didn't like it <laughs> so they're on you'll see little glimmers of of real things like mm -hmm. real science in some of these sources they're just obviously interpreting through their 1300s brains. Yes. Jacobus calls this insipid, inspissated air, or air, that, or air that was thick. When, when that thick air gathered over a person, it corrupted the spirits of man, causing, among other things, swellings. Jacobus also tried to explain why some people were infected while others weren't by linking this bad air to the humoral theory. As a quick reminder, the humoral theory was the idea that the body contained four humors that had to be kept in balance, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. 
According to Jacobus, people who ran hot and dry in their humoral balance tended to have large open pores, which allowed more miasma in. Yep, so we see sort of a coming together of these different medical theories. Others agreed that it was miasma, but believed that the miasma didn't just come from something normal, like rotting carcasses. It actually came from the center of the earth. One anonymous German writer wrote that the plague was caused by, quote, a corrupt and poisonous earthly exhalation. He believed that the earth was full of fumes, which he actually says batter against the sides of the earth, trying to get out. When air gets trapped in the earth, it, quote, becomes so corrupted that it constitutes a potent poison to men. Earthquakes released these terrible vapors, causing disease. To explain why the rich became sick less frequently than the poor, which is not probably actually very accurate, because I think that rich and poor died sort of at the same, more or less the same rates. Um, He said that rich people ate good hot food and lots of wine, which filled them with fumes, leaving no room for poisonous earth fumes. Toot fumes. Correct. (laughs) That's how I interpret it. Poor people, without access to such fume-producing foods, had plenty of fume space inside them and therefore got more easily infected. Hmm. So while this guy's theory is bonkers... It demonstrates that the prevailing theory of infection was the miasma theory, an idea that would last well into the 19th century. And you see this even in the guy who's talking about astrology. It's because this, you know, the the phases of the moon or whatever, the Aquarius thing, affected miasmas that were created. Mm-hmm. Right? There was this linkage between mm-hmm. the movement of the planets mm-hmm. and miasmas. Like, miasma mm-hmm. is really the dominant theory. Mm-hmm. But the miasma theory wasn't enough for some people. Whether it was corrupted air or nasty earth burps, it must have had a deeper cause. And for many people, that deeper cause was the wrath of God. An anonymous poem written sometime in the 14th century decried sin as the ultimate cause of the pestilence. See how England mourns drenched in tears. The people stained by sin! Quake with grief. Plague is killing men and beasts. Why? Because vices rule unchallenged here. Alas, the whole world is now given over to spite. Where can a kind heart be found among the people? No one thinks of the crucified Christ, and therefore the people perish as a token of vengeance. Ah, romantic. Heinrich von Herford, a friar from Westphalia, which is in Germany, blamed the clergy for indulging their own vices instead of doing their best to be humble and godly pastors. He said, look at all these abbots, priors, wardens, masters, lectors, provosts, and canons, and groan. Look at their life, the example they give, their career, and their doctrine, and at the risks to their people, and tremble. And you too, Lord. Father of mercies, look down and have mercy, for we have sinned against you. Once in a particular, (laughs) pride seemed to concern clerics the most. An anonymous English monk believed that increasingly intricate and lavish clothing was to blame. He said, women 
flowed with the tides of fashion in this and other things, even more eagerly, wearing clothes that were so tight that they wore a foxtail hanging down inside their skirts at the back to hide their asses. <laughs> I don't understand that at all. I think the idea is that, this is this is my interpretation, it could be wrong, that it's so tight that it might show off their butt crack. Do you know what uh, I mean? Yeah. So that they would hang a tail in their butt crevice, like a foxtail to like smooth it out. Guys, like... I don't study the 14th century. Like, I have no... 14th century. I have no idea if that's correct. Um, it's the only way I can make sense of that. <laughs> but anyway, he goes on to say, The sin of pride manifested in this way must surely bring down misfortune in the future. Another writer was angry about gowns, particularly men's gowns, which is a tunic overhose. Right. This garment has an apt name, being called gown in the vernacular, and well called since it is said that gown derives from gown, <laughs> which ought properly be pronounced wang. That is to say, wide open to mockery. They have party colored and striped hose, which they tie with laces to their padlocks, and which are called harlots, and thus one harlot serves another, because the people wantonly squander the gifts of God on rage, pride, lechery, and greed, and all the rest of the deadly sins. It is only to be expected that the Lord's vengeance will follow. Oh, Lord. With such terrible sin causing uncontrolled pestilence, some medieval Christians didn't believe that regular old mass attendance and prayer were sufficient to meet the threat, even if they increased the numbers, right? Having required, you know, multiple mass attendances a week that just wasn't, you know, sufficient. Something had to be done to truly atone. Religious fraternities of lay people were common in medieval Europe, focusing on different kinds of religious service. Some functioned like public charities, offering support to the poor and, during the plague, even helping to bury the dead. Others, though, focused on performing a kind of collective penance for the world's sins. These men, who called themselves the disciplinati, used whips, often with three thongs with bent nails at the tips, to punish themselves and each other as a form of atonement. They were also sometimes called flagellants, named for the Latin word for whip, flagellum. These groups were not aligned or connected to the Catholic Church. Although they were certainly Catholic, this wasn't a sanctioned practice. When the Black Death arrived, these flagellant societies morphed into something larger. It seemed obvious to deeply religious society that if the plague was caused by sin, it required serious atonement to appease God. And so many people joined or at least supported these flagellant groups. Despite the hostile relationship between the, the church and the flagellants, the need seemed so great that Pope Clement VI participated in a flagellant gathering in France in 1348. Soon, bands of flagellants were wandering around Europe, traveling from town to town, performing this act of penance. Groups as large as 200 might walk into a town, strip themselves to the waist, sing, and whip themselves in a central gathering space. 
Heinrich von Hereford, the German friar, remarked that flagellants straggled along behind the cross, forming into a procession when they entered a town, with hoods or hats pulled down over their foreheads and sad and downcast eyes, which went, they went through the streets singing a sweet hymn, but whenever they came to the part of the hymn which mentioned the passion of Christ, they all suddenly threw themselves down prostrate on the ground, regardless of where they were, whether there were thorns or thistles or nettles or stones. Hereford, a real clergyman, was not a fan of the flagellants. He called them ignorant, stupid, annoying, and suggested that they were heretical, which the upper echelons of the church eventually agreed on. By October 1349, Pope Clement issued a papal bull condemning the flagellants and insisted that local parishes refuse to entertain the itinerant bands. Those who joined the flagellants or even supported them faced excommunication. They didn't entirely disappear... And in fact, new crops of flagellants popped up all through later waves of the plague. Have you watched Carnival Row? Not yet, no. There's flagellants in it. <gasps> no kidding. They're pucks, though. They're um, fawns. Ooh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to watch it. Not unrelated to the belief that the plague was a result of rampant sin, many Catholic Europeans believed that a perceived enemy of Christianity might be to blame. The Jews. While the position of the Catholic Church was officially to support and protect European Jews, many Catholics felt that Jews were a kind of enemy as the, quote, killers of Christ, Mm -hmm. which is bull****, but still. It didn't seem like a stretch for these Catholics that Jews, who they didn't want in their society anyway, might be the culprits for the plague outbreak. Hermann Gigas, another German friar, discusses the causes of the plague this way, quote, Some say it was brought about by corruption of the air. Others, that the Jews planned to wipe out all the Christians with poison and had poisoned wells and springs everywhere. And many Jews confessed as much under torture, that they bred spiders and toads in pots and pans and had obtained poison from overseas, and that not every Jew knew about the wickedness, only the more powerful ones, so that it would not be betrayed." In 1349, a physician in France wrote that while the first waves of the plague were natural, the third wave, which, you know, he's describing one hitting France in 1349, was, quote, human artifice and suggested that men were filling glass jars with gaseous poison. So, again, you know, getting back to this miasma theory, even though it's, you know, it's also crazy, you know, scapegoating. Um, so these glass jars with gaseous poison, and smashing them on rocks to spread pestilence. As a result of such stories, communities began to punish Jewish populations for their crimes, quote-unquote crimes, even before guys like Gigas and this French physician were blaming them. In 1348, about 40 Jewish people were murdered while they slept in their beds in Toulon, France. There are many other examples of this comparatively small-scale murder, although It seems awful to refer to the murders of 40 people as small scale. Unfortunately, there was much worse to come. In Basel, Switzerland, in 1349, 200 Jews were locked in a barn and burned alive. In Strasbourg, in the Alsace-Lorraine region on the border of France and Germany, 900 Jews were burned alive and another 900 expelled from the city, effectively removing all Jews from the region. Mm. 
The horrific persecution of the Jews during the Black Death demonstrates just how much damage the plague did to European society. Not to say that Christians were excellent to Jews beforehand, but this particularly catastrophic moment certainly shows how desperate and angry people were in the face of unexplainable and uncontrollable disease. So, the Black Death and, and epidemics in general, um, when I'm teaching this, it always makes me think of The Walking Dead, the show The Walking Dead, which, have you ever watched it? Yes. I gave up after I gave up eight two. seasons. I gave up two. I, I don't remember how many seasons I watched, but I watched many of them um, and was actually very into it for a while. Um, I gave up as well because it, it just got kind of over the top kind of torture porn for me. Mm-hmm. But something about it really stuck with me, which is that even though it's about zombies, right, walkers, it's actually like sort of at its core about an epidemic, right? Like it's about this kind of on this disease that they can't understand and they can't control. And it's not about the zombies, right? Like the zombies are the bad guys, but like the real story is about how society reacts to the disease. Like the real story is all about how people um, change and societies change and how people become really like scary and awful in the face of this this you know onslaught of an epidemic and so i i think that the walking dead is kind of an interesting way of thinking about how society would have been affected by the black death right this kind of chaos that would have taken place because there's this uncontrollable onslaught of death i often use the walking dead as an example in class because students at least have some familiarity with the show and they're Mm -hmm. like oh okay i sort of see how it's not the, the plot of the show isn't about the disease, it's about the people and how the people react to it. It's an mm-hmm. interesting way of getting students to think about the social and cultural impacts of disease. Yeah. Um, so the economy was thrown into flag because the vast death toll meant a shortage of agricultural labor, which incongruously led to higher wages and better conditions for peasants, but landlords suffered. In Italy, according to historian Joseph Burns, some landlords were eventually so impoverished they became outlaws and mercenaries. In England, this eventually led to the restructuring of English society. New wage laws tried to stop peasants from using labor shortages to their advantage and aligned the crown with middling landowners, helping to create a new gentry class and kill the old feudal system. It also ushered in changes that we might recognize as public health laws. The most famous example is the Italian city of Pistoia, which put in place a strict code that has become known as the Plague Ordinances. These ordinances controlled the trade of certain items, including wool cloth, which was suspected of harboring disease, um, controlled movement in and out of the city, and banned trades associated with foul odors, including tanning leather, inside the city walls. It also dictated lots of new rules on funerals and burial. Dead bodies could not be brought into the city for any reason. Non-family members were not allowed to enter the homes of the dead, and bodies had to be buried in wooden boxes at least two and a half arms lengths deep to avoid stench. Is that six feet? I'm not sure. I wonder if it is, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I bet it's six feet. Probably, yeah. Yeah, or five, right? If you think that your arm might be, what, two feet? Mm. Two and a half, maybe? And then two, two and a half yeah. would be five. Yeah. yeah. What's really interesting in this section of the plague ordinances of, of Pistoia is that they also tried to control mourning, 
Funeral gifts, which were a common European custom, were banned, as was any public mourning for anyone who died outside of Pistoia. No one was allowed to buy or wear new mourning clothes, and the bells could not be rung during funerals, as they typically were. Avril, why do you think the governing council of Pistoia enacted these really sort of specific ordinances around the act of mourning? Because you don't want people to go to the funeral. Okay, why not? Because then there'd be close contact with the dead body, which might harbor the disease. It might smell. And it might be smelly. Right. So, like, there's the miasma thing. Probably was smelly. They didn't have any formaldehyde. Exactly. Right. I mean, the dead bodies are going to smell. That's why. Why are they burying them two and a half arms lengths deep? To avoid stench. Right. Cover it with dirt. Absolutely. Maybe Um, a newspaper. But they're also no funeral gifts. No public mourning for anyone who died outside of Pistoia. No one's allowed to buy new mourning clothes. That one seems strange. It is strange. But what it, what I think it really gets to is not so much that they don't want people to go to funerals, which there are some restrictions on, like, how many people can go, like, for instance, back to the house after the funeral. So they mm-hmm. are trying to limit attendance at funerals. But what this is really about is if they were ringing the bells, like they do traditionally mm-hmm. during a funeral, how much do you think those bells would be ringing? All day, Constantly, all yeah. constantly, constant bell ringing. Yeah. If you had to go out, as custom would dictate normally, and buy new mourning clothes if your husband died, if your father died, if your uncle died, right, you would be broke. So they pass these ordinances in the middle of the plague, not after Correct. the plague. Correct. Oh, right. okay. It's yeah. while it's still affecting so the city. So it's to alleviate the infrastructure in the people of the city sort of yeah it, it's basically trying to say like funerals are getting out of control because it's happening so often we can't keep up with the funeral gifts we can't right. keep up with the morning clothes we can't have the bells ringing constantly because it is destroying morale yeah. if you have bells ringing constantly to indicate funerals then that is just driving home to everyone that everyone is dying everybody's right. dead everybody's dead bring right? out your dead yeah exactly bring out your dead um so I think that that's one of the most telling parts of the plague ordinances because it's getting at this con- this attempt to control more than just public health, but also sort of the public reaction to the epidemic. The heavy presence of death, of course, made the biggest impact. Death was everywhere all the time. One Englishman, thinking back on the plague as an elderly man, stated that, quote, At the time of the first great pestilence, the servants of William Wingrave, then rector, this guy was one of those servants, so he's talking, sort of talking about this experience in the third person, uh, went with a cart to Templeton to bring back the bodies of the dead by night for burial at Withridge. And at Belbyford, so full was the cart, one body fell off. And William Attahenny was given a penny to go back and fetch it the next day, right? I like this story because it's just this very, like, matter-of-fact sort of experience of dealing with death. Like, there are so many bodies in the cart. One of the bodies fell off. We had to send somebody back to grab it, right? In one record from Lancashire, England, accounting for the property distribution of the dead in the area between September 1349 and January 1350, reads like this. Within the parish of Preston, 3,000 men and women died, of whom 300 made wills. 200 parishioners of Preston died intestate. Within the parish of Kirkham, 3,000 men and women died, of whom 600 had wills. 60 parishioners of Cockerham died intestate. And on and on and on. 
just you know proving the in intense death tolls in this very short period between September and January. In numerous cities and towns around Europe, burial grounds were unable to keep up with the number of dead. As we saw in Boccaccio's Decameron, sacred burial ground was a constant problem. In London, a guy named Walter Manny, with great foresight, set aside an additional 13 acres of land and had it consecrated for use as a burial site. Within that year, so just in the year 1349, there were 50,000 people buried at that new site. According to a later account, the cemetery had a stone cross with the following inscription. In the year of our Lord 1349, during the reign of the Great Pestilence, this cemetery was consecrated, in which, and within the boundaries of the present monastery, there were buried more than 50,000 bodies, not counting the many buried there since that time, upon whose souls may God have mercy. Amen. It's little wonder, then, that death affected society in chaotic ways. In the Decameron, Boccaccio talks about families abandoning each other, desperate to flee the city and get away from the pestilence. At the same time, he said, all respect for the laws of God and man had virtually broken down and been extinguished in our city. Everyone was free to behave as he pleased. People behaved, he wrote, quote, as if their days were numbered and treated their belongings and their own persons with equal abandon. People partied, drank, and boned like there was no tomorrow because they might, there might actually not be a tomorrow. Right. In Padua, one account states that the fear of the spreading plague tore families apart, afraid to even touch each other for fear of infection. The infection was incurable. It could not be avoided. The wife fled the embrace of a dear husband, the father that of a son, and the brother that of a brother. Even the houses or the clothes of the victims could kill. The heavy presence of death and suffering also crept into culture as Europeans struggled to come to terms with what the pestilence meant. The most famous example of death's heavy influence on culture is the artistic genre called the dance macabre, which typically depicts skeletons representing death dancing living humans to the grave. Often death is shown approaching or seizing people, often members of high society. Skeletons, sometimes wearing crowns, pull priests, deacons, and wealthy women away with them. In an Estonian church, a fresco depicts morbid-looking, brownish skeletons clasping hands and dancing with priests, kings, lords, and ladies. Underneath, an inscription reads, Emperor, your sword won't help you out. Scepter and crown are worthless here. I've taken you by the hand, for you must come to my dance. Often, the humans look fairly blasé about being seized by death. But in others, like Hans Holbein's 16th century engravings, people resist crying out and trying to escape. There are dozens and dozens of these images featuring all different sorts of people. One of my favorite Holbein engravings shows an annoyed-looking skeleton grasping a beaker of what is probably urine from a doctor. In some, the skeletons dance, play instruments, and basically just seem to be having a great time. It reminds me of a phrase that was common during the Civil War era that, quote, death held high carnival. Now, I don't actually know the origin of that phrase, but it seems really similar to the message behind these engravings, paintings, and poems. These images had one intention, to remind viewers that death was ubiquitous, inescapable, and came for everyone regardless of station. Not even the most distinguished physician's urinalysis can save you. Death is all-powerful. 
a famous poem that I love called A Disputation Betwixt the Body and Worms, written in about 1460 to 1470, captures this idea in a really interesting way. The poem is narrated by a person who, during a, quote, period of great mortality with pestilence reigning, goes for a walk by a country church in search of fresh air, when he overhears a conversation between a between the fresh corpse of a beautiful rich woman and the worms that await her body. The woman, upset at the impudence of these worms who are threatening to eat her, accuses them of being discourteous and demands that her knights come to her rescue. The worms are not impressed, and they respond like this. Uh, What should they do, the knights? We want to hear. We dread them not, nor fear their moans, for we've to the uttermost made good cheer with all that were mighty who've left their thrones before this time having received their bones. All of them, conquerors, emperors, kings, lords, both over temporal and spiritual things. All the nine worthy, Alexander the Great, Judas Maccabeus and David of old, Caesar and Hector and Guinevere's mate, Godfrey and Joshua and Charlemagne bold, with all Trojan knights, each with honor untold, and beautiful Helen, so fair of visage, Polyxena, Lucretia, and Dido of Carthage. These and more were your equal in looks, yet dared they not to stir or move once we possession of them took. For all venomous worms it does behoove to do this labor, as soon they'll prove, with us to stay there fully set, they'll waste and devour you utterly yet. And while this poem is a little tongue-in-cheek, its message was intended as a warning. Death is all around us and will claim us all, no matter how rich, poor, powerful, or plain. And given the death tolls, this message makes sense. It's very difficult to get a good statistic of the plague's toll because of the complexities of record-keeping across regions. But historians currently seem to agree somewhere around a third to a half of Europeans' population died. If anything, historian Joseph Byrne says, these estimates have increased in recent years. In England, historian Christopher Dyer has asserted half of the English population died in 1348 to 49. Ulla Benedictao estimates that Norway lost 64% of its population between 1300 and 1500 and wouldn't return to its pre-plague population for another century. No wonder those who survived felt the oppressive presence of death all around, waiting to dance them into the grave at any moment. Dun, dun, dun. He's coming for you. Um, Did you know this much about the Black Death as a Europeanist? I'm just curious because I'm an Americanist, but I actually find myself weirdly knowing a lot about the Black Death. And it's because I think I, I kind of live partly in the world of history of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, <laughs> I was having this weird experience of being like, I, I don't know how to describe Italy because like Italy didn't really exist. Right. Yeah. It was like all these it Italian states yeah. um, or like Germany. <laughs> like, like I'm very much out of my depth in terms of like the European history aspect. Yes. Did you encounter like, is this something that is important in like the history of like the kinds of reading that you did for your exams, I mean. Oh, no. But I no. was a modern Europeanist. I am a modern Europeanist. I'm not dead. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, my encounters with it are primarily as when I teach it. We didn't, we didn't include any of this. Not even the English stuff, which 
Th- I think that's what I was curious yeah. about. Like, the way that it's impact on, like, the feudal system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, my exams didn't reach really that far back, mm-hmm. although potentially I would have to teach that. I guess it was probably in, like, some of the textbooks that I mm-hmm. gleaned, but those weren't going to be the core of my questions. So right. I didn't yeah. read for it really right. closely. I wonder if Marissa might have encountered more. Oh, Marissa, more. for sure, yeah. Because yeah. she is strictly early modern, right? which is this period and a little bit after. After, right, now. yeah. Because this effectively, like, the Black Death basically is the marker for the start of the early modern period. I think so. Yeah. Because it's like 1400 to 1800. Right. The early modern period. Right. So, um, yeah, the you would have to know that context to really understand how society is different. Why it is exactly. called early modern. Why we characterize it as early modern right. versus medieval. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing that, like, I probably could have spent a lot more time on. Like, this episode, I wanted to spend a lot of time talking about the disease itself and about the death tolls and mm-hmm. how it affects things. Because, obviously, death series. Yeah. But, like, you could do a, a whole, you could do dozens of other episodes just looking at how it affects politics or mm-hmm. how it affects, like, yeah. you know, the the English social system changes yeah. because of the, the Black Death. Like, mm-hmm. the economic system changes because of the Black Death, right? Yeah. Or at least is impacted by it. Yeah. Um, Even the episode about patriarchy and the beer brewing, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Black Death changes the beer brewing industry in England because it's fewer people um, and they have more resources and then they start to want beer and so the beer brewing industry becomes an industry as opposed right. to this piecemeal women's work and the men take it away from the women. Right. So that's another really interesting and sort of counterintuitive aspect of the, the, the effects of the Black Death is that the population decrease actually leads to higher wages and yeah. better living standards. Yeah. <laughs> like People's quality of life went up. Yeah. Which doesn't seem logical, but it, it yeah. but it is logical. It, it is just logical. seems like oh, it, everybody's it life was wrong. terrible, right? It seems wrong that it happens. I mean, that's right. the same thing. Like the Great Famine in Ireland is, yeah. um, this is like this trauma in Irish memory, and no one can ever forget it. And mm-hmm. the English are the worst, but also everybody who survived and stayed in Ireland had a better quality of life. Right? They ended up, you know, the the people who survived tended to be already better off. Because um, mm-hmm. they had access to food and education, and then they were who would be the Irish from the right. 1850s on. Right. Again, these really strange, like, after effects of diseases that you don't think about, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, another way you can think of it as, like, disease being, like, setting off a sort of weird butterfly effect, mm-hmm. right? That, like, um, like, for instance, I don't know anything about the history of Russia, but I imagine that the death of Crown Prince, you know, Simeon Ivanovich oh, yeah. set off, like, a bunch of different, like, shockwaves through Russian society and, and changed yeah. the, you know, the the way that the you know, mo- rule of Moscow happened or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's what I think. The history of epidemics is totally fascinating to me i mean history of medicine in general is because it has all of these effects that are not about like a bacterium being injected by a flea right Right. like it's all of these different things that happen like in terms of um, demographics and population and you know people interacting with one another and Mm -hmm. like i could read about the dance macabre 
all day. Like I could look yeah. at these pictures all day because they're just really powerful encapsulations of how people are trying to process this, yeah. right? And I think this goes actually sort of hand in hand with Marissa's episode on, or no, Elizabeth's episode on yeah. the cult of death because yeah. those tombstones telling you like, you're going to die too. Yeah. Like, take a look at this and, and think of, yeah, think about this because this is what's going to happen to you. That's exactly the message of the dance macabre, okay, yeah. right? Is this is going to happen to all of us. And the, the worms are telling that woman, like, you might be beautiful, but like, so was Dido and she's worm food now too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hmm. They, which I should also say, there are lots of images that I'll put into the, into yeah. the show notes so you can sort of look there's different um illustrations of the disputation betwixt a body and worms that are really great <laughs> little wormies gross ew yeah worms before we sign off we want to give a big thank you to our patreon supporters particularly our auger and excavator level patrons peggy danielle colin maggie iris our newest patron thank you iris and chris thank you for your support of the show um, it wouldn't be possible without your continued, you know, support. support. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at dig underscore history on Twitter. And we're, we have just a regular Facebook in our dig history pod squad mm-hmm. for those of you who are true fans and want to be among us. <laughs> like we are regular people. Want to oh. hang out with us more. Yes. Um, and you can find the transcript and bibliography for this episode at digpodcast.org. You can always send us an email to tell us how you enjoyed an episode or if you want you have ideas for other episodes, mm-hmm. hello at digpodcast.org. And please leave us a five-star oh, yes. review on iTunes that yeah. helps us be seen by others. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Seeking the history of stuff. Yes. Thanks for listening. All right, bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. The departing Italian ships from Kaffa sailed through the Bosporus and anchored in Constantinople. Do you know how much Google Earthing I had to do to write this episode? To figure out because where there. I forgot the name of the Bosporus. It's tough. And I was like, wait, there's got to be a name. Because I'm looking at the map. I was like, there's got to be a name for that strait, right? So I'm Googling, like, strait between Black Sea <laughs> at Constantinople. And I was and like, there it is. oh, Dr. McGuire would be so he would be very disappointed, disappointed in me. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I don't know where the hell. Like, the Sea of Marmara. I've never even heard of that before. That just means the sea of the sea of the sea. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Mar, Mar means Mar. sea. The sea of the sea of the sea. Oh, that's cute. That's a lot of sea. Mm-hmm. Must be a big one. Uh, it soon hopped the hopped. <laughs> it soon hopped. It soon hopped the Orpza. <laughs> and Persia between 541 and 670. Oh my God. When it isn't like in the teens, I cannot say these these years <laughs> for some reason. Kitats Kitasato. Kitasato Shibas. This pandemic ravaged the Byzantine Empire and Persia between 541 and 7... What? You just made a funny face at me, though, now, and I have to do it again. (sighs) From Constantinople, ships traveled through the sea, uh...
through the through the <laughs> through the sea of the sea of the sea through the through, through the, the sea of the sea of the sea. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.